Well, hey, hey uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, for much of this semester, we've been spending some time in the first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we have been calling the Kingdom Way, the Kingdom Way. By the way, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll have some folks coming around here in just a few moments, and uh, they'll get one of these hardback Bibles into your hands. And uh, if you are following along with us in these Bibles, we're on page 811. 811 is where we are in these Bibles. And friends, if you don't personally own a copy of the Bible, consider this our gift to you, an early Christmas gift from us to you. We want everyone to own a Bible, but more importantly, we want you to be reading your Bible. Read your word because we believe that we grow best when we are grounded in God's word. And so go ahead and do that if you need. But uh, open up to Matthew chapter 5. Now, for those of you who were with us at our sponsored church last week, the State College Alliance Church, you heard Pastor Chad preach out of this very mess, uh, this passage in Matthew 5. Now, let me just say this. Although the passage is the same, today's message is vastly different from Pastor Chad's message from last week, okay? So, so don't feel like you're hearing the same message twice, even if the text is the same, okay? And so with that said, meet me at Matthew chapter 5, starting from verse 43, and we're going to carry it all the way to the end, to verse 48. Matthew 5, verse 43. We'll also put the text up here on the screen. If you'd rather look along that way with us, that's fine as well. This is Jesus preaching, this is Jesus speaking, and hear the words of Christ. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, if you've been tracking with us for the last several weeks, you'll know that this is not the first time Jesus uses this speech pattern of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. In fact, at this point, Jesus would have used this precise pattern five times already. And this would make it his sixth and final time. But church, you need to pick up on this. This sixth and final time is a little bit different from the other five times prior to this. You see, in all the other five cases, Jesus is making reference to some Old Testament principle found in the Mosaic Law. In fact, if you really wanted to, you can, we didn't do this during the series, but you can trace back all the way into literal Old Testament text, uh, chapter and verse of where, where Jesus is referencing these laws. All of these, you have heard that it was said, can be traced back to some old covenant principle in the Old Testament, except this sixth one. You see, this one isn't found anywhere in Scripture. This one, nowhere does God instruct us to love our neighbor and hate our enemy. You see, what was happening during this time, you need to pick up on this, was that the religious leaders were twisting the Word of God and the Holy Scripture to say something that it wasn't actually saying. 
This saying was completely manufactured whereby these, these leaders were teaching folks to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What they were doing was they were altering their theology to fit their circumstances. They were altering their theology to fit their circumstances. And I wonder, church, how often do we do that? How often do we alter our theology to make it fit our circumstances? You see, listen, folks, when we view God through the filter of our circumstances and what is going on in our lives, listen, our inclination will be to view God to view God through the, through the filter of our circumstances. And so we view God and we, 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 we start constructing this theology based on our circumstances. And so practically speaking, here's how this plays out. We say things like, I'm going through this. Whatever this is, you fill in the blank. This pain, this hardship, this difficulty, this dry season in my life. How many of us have found ourselves there, right? We're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to follow God. But I don't feel nothing. I, I just feel, it just feels dry. I'm going through this. I'm going through this rough patch in my life. I'm going through this breakup. I'm going through this tragedy that I'm facing. And because of all of that, we say, God must be this. Because of all of that, God must be absent. God must be distant. God must be apathetic. God must not care about me. How many of us are guilty of that train of thought, right? I know I am. I know I am. But listen now. Instead of our circumstances forming our theology, we need to have our theology informing our circumstances. Did you hear me, church? I know it's early. I know you're college students, but did you hear me? In fact, this is too good to just say once. Instead of our circumstances forming our theology, we need to have our theology informing our circumstances. In other words, when we view our circumstances, the things that are going on in our lives, through the filter now of God's character, which, by the way, is to be informed by God's word, when we start seeing our circumstances through God's character, through his faithfulness, through his goodness, through his loving kindness towards us, through his unending mercy and abounding grace over our lives, our theology then begins to inform our circumstances. And so we begin to say now, because I know God is this, I can face my circumstances like this. Because I know God is this, I now can face my circumstances in life like this. In other words, we now begin to interpret our life circumstances from the perspective of faith. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. But you see, the religious leaders during this time were missing this. They were missing the point. That's why Jesus was always on their case. They're like, Jesus was like, you guys are missing the point. You're missing the point. They, they, they failed to do this entirely. All they did was they simply altered their theology to make it fit into their cozy little boxes of preference and their lives. And so we see that the sixth, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, is different than all the other five prior ones in that it wasn't an even an, an Old Testament principle that Jesus was referencing. Now, in addition to that, this last you have heard it said, but I say to you is different in that what follows after, but what I say to you isn't necessarily the most controversial or challenging. 
much like the ones previous were. I, I mean, the previous ones had sayings like, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Uh, I, I, don't murder, yes, but I say to you, don't even be angry with a brother. D don't, yes, don't cheat. Yes, obviously, don't cheat. But I say to you, don't even look at someone lustfully. In fact, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. I mean, these are some tough pills to swallow. This is really some tough pills to swallow. But this last one, love your enemies, not so much. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's certainly counterintuitive to love your enemies, but think about this for just a minute. Aren't we generally taught to love all people equally? Right, like, like we're taught this. I, I mean, our, our parents taught this to us. Our teachers growing up taught this to us. Our school systems taught this to us. Our society at large teaches this to us. I mean, the notion of loving fellow man is something that our, our culture would readily embrace for the most part. Our world preaches things like inclusion, love, keep the peace, man, like peacemaking and peacekeeping. We, our, our world preaches things like this. And so it wouldn't be a far reach to get our heads around Christ's words here when he says to us, love your enemies. In fact, most of us would say, okay, Jesus, I, I, I actually get this one. I can, I can get on board with this one. You know that whole turning the other cheek and gouging my right eye out? I, I wasn't so sure about that, but loving my enemies, that sounds good. I can get on board with that. But listen, church, it's one thing to buy into an idea. It's a whole other thing to live it out. It's one thing to say, yes, I agree with you, Jesus. It's another thing to abide by Jesus, abide by his word. And here's where the tension lies for most of us. It's when we try to live the words of Jesus out. You see, when the rubber meets the road, when push comes to shove, when it really comes down to it, listen, there are only really two clarifying questions that need to be answered here that we actually have to answer if we want to do what Jesus is clearly telling us to do, and that is to love our enemies. Now, these two questions, you ought to know, church, are not groundbreaking questions. In fact, they are, they're, they're two of the most basic and, and, and simplest questions that, that sometimes I wonder if we forget to even ask them. The problem is, if we don't adequately answer these two questions, we will simply defer to, Jesus, loving my enemies is a good idea, but it's not really possible. You know, loving my enemies is idealistic, but it's not realistic. But remember, Jesus doesn't want us to just buy into his ideas. He wants us to practically live out his words. And so the question we're left with is, how do we love our enemies? I agree that I got to love my enemies. I, I understand that. But how do we love our enemies? Well, we need to ask ourselves the first clarifying question, and that is, who is my enemy? Who is my enemy. If you're taking notes down, you could, you could jot this down as the header, who is my enemy, and, and try to resist the urge from listing out names. I was like, ah, this one did me wrong. This, that's not the point here. We're going to get to why this question matters. If Jesus is calling us to love our enemies, listen, church, it is worthwhile to ask the question, well, wait a second, who is my enemy in the first place? 
Now, I know many of us, we don't even like thinking along those lines. Like, I, many of us don't even like the, the thought of having enemies, right? Like, I, I'm not sure anyone, anyone, one of us would stand up and say, I've got, I've got enemies, you know, or, or we don't like being thought of as an enemy. And so the question of who is my enemy, we don't even like to think along those lines. But church, listen, it's important. It is critical that we ask this question because, hear me, this question re will reveal more about you than your so-called enemies. This is a soul-searching question that we need to ask. You see, for the religious leaders during this time, they, they had a clear enemy. There was a clear line of distinction right down the middle of who they thought as their enemy and who they thought as their neighbor. Who they thought as their neighbor and who they thought as their enemy. You see, for these Jewish leaders, their neighbor was widely understood as their fellow Jew. And so, so the, so the cul-de-sac of their neighborhood would have been consisted of mostly fellow Israelites. I mean, that's who they rolled with. And so those Samaritans out there, those Romans out there, those Greeks, those Gentiles out there, they were largely disregarded by the Jewish community, by these Jewish leaders. But it actually went a step further. They didn't just disregard them. They actually hated anyone who was not a true Jew. They, they, they rejected them so much so that they would have been categorized as enemies of these folks. Hence, love your neighbor, your fellow Jew, and hate your enemy, the Gentile, or anyone who is not Jewish. In fact, it was very much in the norm of the Jewish mindset and their culture to view anyone who was not a born and bred Jew as nothing more than a dog. They were subhuman. They were subhuman. And the reason for that was from a Jewish perspective, if you were a Gentile, you were unclean and unholy, which therefore made you an enemy of God. And if you are an enemy of God, surely you are our enemy because we are the people of God. Gentiles, you see how that works? So, the, so anyone who was not Jewish by nature, by, by their birthright, was seen as unholy, unclean, and as our enemies. Now, if you've read much of any of the New Testament you'll quickly find out that that goes against everything that Jesus stood for. In fact, Jesus came with a very specific mission in mind, and part of that mission was, was to destroy the dividing lines between Jews and Gentiles. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no, there's no distinction here. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Then if you flip over a couple of books later in Colossians chapter 3, Paul, said, Paul says something very similar. He says, here, there is not Greek and Jew. Again, there's no distinction there. Circumcised and uncircumcised, what he's referring to is, is the, the circumcision of the flesh that Jewish uh, men under, underwent. And, and if you were, that's how, that's how the Jewish community distinguished themselves from the rest of the world, through the circumcision of the flesh. And so again, he's re referencing the dividing line between Jew and Gentile, between these two categories of people. But, but Paul expands it even further, and Jesus in his mission expanded it even further than that. Barbarian, Scythian, Slave, free, and he goes on and he says, but Christ is all and in 
all, friends, if there's anything that Jesus came to do, it was to demolish every wall of hostility that exists within humanity. That's what Jesus came to do. To demolish every wall of hostility, Ephesians tells us, that exists within our humanity. Now, in light of that, in light of understanding that now, I want to ask you, who is your enemy? Who would you deem as your enemy? I wonder, is it the one who is racially, ethnically, culturally different from you? Is it the one who doesn't share the same viewpoints as you do or hold the same set of values as you do? Is it the one who votes differently on their ballots than you do? Is it the one on the other side of the political spectrum? Is it, is it the one who, who's maybe, maybe it's so simple as, as personality. Maybe for you, the, the, the person you think of, their personality is so fundamentally different from yours that just being around them irritates you. Is that your enemy? Is your enemy someone who stands opposed to everything you stand for? Is that your enemy? Or is your enemy, let's, let's strike closer to home, or is your enemy someone who has brought some kind of offense and pain and anguish into your life in a very personal, hurtful way? Is that, is that your enemy? Who is, who would you deem as your enemy? Now, again, we, we might not be using that particular word in, in our minds. We might not even think along the lines of who is my enemy, but if you, let, me, let me put this before you. If we were honest with ourselves, what we might discover is that we have been building up walls of hostility and division around these particular types of people without even knowing it, whereby you have, by very definition, made yourself an enemy. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have any enemies. I'm, I'm good with people. I'm not an enemy to anyone. Let me ask you, who is your enemy? Who have you built walls around? Who are the people that are most likely to repel you and whom you are most likely to reject? Who are those people? Let me say this. I don't care how nice of a person you are. There are people in your life, if you searched hard enough, if you uncovered and unopened the lid of your life, you might discover, holy crap, I, I have been building walls around certain people. I have been keeping people at distance. I have been pushing people, certain types of people. I do tend to gravitate towards others and, and reject others. Who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? But you see, it's not enough to just ask that question. You see, for the religious leaders, the answer would have been anyone who was not like them. Anyone more like a Pharisee than a true follower. I mean, I know I find myself in that place. You're like me. You look like me. You talk like me. You act like me. Hey, man, we can roll together, man. That, that's, you're my people. I'm your people. We can... But, but that, that's, that was the mind of the, the religious leaders during that time. If you are not like us, you cannot roll with us. You are not part of our community. You, we, cannot, we cannot tether ourselves together in this life. Who is your enemy? But you see, it's not enough to ask that question alone. Who is my enemy? There needs to be a second clarifying question that we need to ask ourselves, and that is, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? 
Listen, Jesus' command to us is love your enemies. I want you to pick up on this. Jesus does not say, just stop hating your enemies and you'll be good. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that would be simple, right? I'm not going to hold anything against my enemy, that, that person who, is the, who irritates me, who offended me, who hurt me, all that. Like, I, I can be good with not hating them. Jesus doesn't say, just stop hating your enemies. He doesn't say, tolerate your enemies or learn, learn to get along with your enemies or even much less, he doesn't, he doesn't even say, like your enemies. He says unequivocally, love your enemies. So that begs the question, Jesus, what do you mean when you say love? You want me to love my enemies like I love my wife, my kids, my family? You want me to love my enemies like I love my mom and dad? Do you want me to love my enemies the way I love cheeseburgers? You know, like, do, do you want me to love my enemies the way I love my food? Do you want me to love my enemies the way I love Penn State football? Do you want me to love my enemies the way I love my sports teams? Jesus, what are you talking about here when you say love your enemies? What does it mean to love? Well, Jesus shows us. He paints us a picture real, real clear here in this passage. Look at what verse 45 says. Jesus says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I want to give you three quick things that I believe that Jesus tells us what love is to show us just how to love our enemies. Number one, love is equally favoring. Love is equally favoring, and that is to show favor equally across the board. It's choosing to love those who may be evil and unjust equally in the same way you would love all those who are good and just it's choosing to love your enemies the same way you would love, say, your best friend. <laughs> this equally favoring kind of love, listen, doesn't keep record and doesn't keep track of, of the evils and the wrongs done to us by the other person because this kind of equally favoring kind of love does not rely on the merits of the other person. In fact, this is what the Bible refers to as agape, love unconditional love, love without condition, love without any strings attached. And this is precisely the kind of love that God shows us over and over and over again, even when we run away from him, even when we reject him, even when we repel him, God shows us this agape, unconditional love without strings attached over and over and over again. God makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good, the just and the un. Just love is equally favoring. It's equally favoring. And then Jesus says, listen to what he says in the next verse, in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? We see that love is not only equally favoring, but we see here that love is also self-sacrificing. Love is self-sacrificing. Listen, friends, love is not truly love if it doesn't cost you something. Love is not truly love if it does not cost you something. Love will always cost something. See, true love between two, any two people will require a certain degree of self-sacrifice. You know, simply loving those who love you in return, that's no special kind of love. There's no special kind of love in that. Jesus, Jesus points to the tax collectors and he says, even the tax collectors know how to do that. 
You know, these, these bottom-of-the-barrel, low-integrity, immoral people, like, even they know how to love like that. That's easy. There's no pain there. There's no risk there. There's no sacrifice there. You see, the kind of love that Jesus calls us to is this self-sacrificing kind of way, an extraordinary kind of love that goes above and beyond. When have you loved someone above and beyond? We like to love people at the lowest hanging fruit level. You know, just, just when it begins to hurt and just when it begins to inconvenience me, well, I pull back. Well, Jesus says, look, even the tax collectors know how to grab those low-hanging fruit. Like, I'm calling you to something higher. I'm, I'm calling you to the, the kingdom way, not the way of the world, not the way of, uh, of society, not the way of the people around you. I'm calling you to the kingdom way, this extraordinary kind of love that goes above and beyond, a kind of love that actually costs me something to love till it hurts. And then the third and final thing that Jesus tells us about love is found in verse 47. He says this, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You know, Jesus was a preacher because he's got his rhyme on. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And here's what we see, folks. Love is not only equally favoring, not only is love self-sacrificing, but love is barrier bridging. Love is barrier bridging. Jesus says, if you greet only your fellow Israelites, if you welcome into your lives only your Jewish brothers and sisters, what good is that? The late Eugene Peterson says it this way in his version of the message. You, you love like any run-of-the-mill sinner what, do you want a medal for that? Like, you want, you want to be recognized for that? And this is as much the same for the Gentiles as it, as it is for the Jews. You see, what Jesus is looking for is this kind of love that will cross over racial barriers, cultural barriers, political barriers, socioeconomic barriers, gender and sexual identification barriers, class barriers, to cross over these barriers to show this equally favoring, self-sacrificing kind of love. Because let me tell you, church, that's the kind of love that changes a world. The kind of love that is equally favoring, self-sacrificing, and barrier-bridging. It's this kind of love by building these bridges across all kinds of barriers that we begin to exemplify truly the kingdom way. And so what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? Well, it means to show favor equally across the board, regardless of whom you are addressing your love towards. It means to sacrifice myself so that the other might know just how much they matter. When was the last time you looked at someone and you expressed to them, you matter to me? Who you are actually matters. You matter. Your, your, your presence in my life, your friendship in my life, your relationship to me, you matter. You matter. You matter because you are intrinsically valuable. You matter. And it means, love means to build bridges. Build bridges. B2P. Bridges. To build bridges. I know it's not B2P anymore, but it means to build bridges Anywhere barriers might exist so that we can reach, listen, not just our neighbor, 
not just our brother, but to truly build bridges so we can reach all people for the sake of God's kingdom. Amen? That's what it means to love, to love in this kingdom way. Love your enemies. And then Jesus closes out with this outlandish charge. This charge that sometimes when I read, I'm like, Jesus, you don't really mean this, right? Like, this is one of those hyperbolic, you know, moments of Jesus. And he says, listen to what he says. You therefore must be, what? What does it say? Perfect. What does it say? Perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Let me, let me just take a quick poll here. Any perfect people in their house tonight, t- today? Any, any perfect people? And, and, and no perfect people. Some of you are like, I think I'm perfect. No, you ain't. You ain't perfect. No, uh, no, there is, that's the point. There is no perfect people. And so what is Jesus talking about? Charging us. You, therefore, must be perfect. Jesus isn't talking about a perfect performance here. He's not talking about a, 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 you know, a life that is free from screw-ups and mess-ups and free from sin. He's not looking for a 10 out of 10 fail-proof, perfect scorecard for your life. Oh my gosh, that, thank God he's, that's not what he's looking for. Because we would have failed miserably a long, long time ago. No, that's not what he's looking for. That's not what he means when he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Rather, listen to how the Scottish theologian, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, put it. I love the way he put it, so I'm just going to read it the way he put it. He says, the mark of perfection in the Christian is just this. His love is not determined by the loveliness or the attractiveness he finds in its objects. His love is not conditional upon his being loved first. His love is not directed only towards those whose love he can rely on in return. No, his love is controlled by the knowledge that when he was God's enemy and a sinner, the father first loved him. Can someone say amen this morning? The father first loved you. The father first loved me. And friends, is this not what happened over 2,000 years ago when God decided to come in the form of a baby, to be born in a manger, to be born from a virgin, Mary and Joseph? Is this not what happened when God decided to express this kind of deepest form of love for a hopelessly sin-ridden world? by giving us a baby, by giving us a child, who would then grow up to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who would then come to bear all of our sins on his back once and for all. He would take it to the cross, be nailed to this cross, be buried in a tomb, then three days later be risen so that we can know what it means for God walking with us, a God who is Emmanuel, God with us. Do you see how that changes everything? That God decided to love his enemies long, long ago. You know that you were an enemy of God. The Bible says, actually, in Romans, that while we were still yet enemies, not, not, not when we became friends with God, Christ died for us. The Bible says, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. 